Good morning, everyone. So we are going backwards. We're continuing our series, or going back to our series called Imagining the Kingdom. If you remember that Jerry took us through that series. And this time I thought we would talk about something that's very important within the series. And I titled today's message, and it's called Kingdom Transformation. If you notice, it's a made-up word. Not to be confused with transformation, which is the act of something changing, but transformation, the act of someone moving from one kingdom to another kingdom. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So our text today is going to be Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 23. Now go ahead and read that, and then we'll, we'll begin our message. So Paul says, he's recounting his testimony of how Jesus appeared to him, and he says, but get up. And stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for the revelation that you give us in Scripture. Even things that we're not even thinking about, Lord, you bring to mind in specific situations. And we pray that you would bring those things to mind today, and that you would encourage all of our hearts, convict all of our hearts, and inspire all of our hearts, Lord, with this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that inspired this message and and brought me to this passage was an event that happened this past summer. I was turning out of the parking lot of this McDonald's on 4th Street. Some of you have been there. And as I'm turning out of the McDonald's parking lot, I saw several police cars speeding north on 4th Street into the direction where I live. And I thought to myself, that's a little bit odd but I didn't think too much of it, so I just turned out, went in the same direction, didn't think anything of it, and as I get into my condo complex, I turn in, and then I see two news vans, and I'm thinking, okay, this is really odd, and I turn around the curve, and as I'm coming into my parking lot, there's a large group of people standing, looking to the left, so I turn to my left, and I see a large group of police cars and a fire truck. Someone had just been shot to death in my parking lot. And I was shocked, thinking, who is this? 
are the guys loose? Are they going to catch the guys? What was the motive? Was this random? Or did the people know the man who was shot? And even last summer, I was flipping through a news channel, and I saw a news story about, some, about a mass shooting of young children at an elementary school. And again, my heart just went out. It, it was broken. I was frustrated. I felt terrible. And then I felt confused. And then I began to think to myself, what is going on in our country? What is going on in our community? What's going on in America? Something is drastically wrong. And did you know that according to FBI statistics, over 565 mass shootings have occurred in 2023? And that's not including the type of shooting that occurred at my complex with just one person. And a mass shooting is, happen, is when there are four or more people who have been involved in a shooting. So if you add up all of the violence that happens, the shooting of three people or less, I don't know how many there are, but it would be much higher than 565 people. And there's a problem. And as I'm thinking about this, my mind begins to, my mind begins to say, we've got to do something. Oh, I know. We have to have better legislation. We need gun control. And then I thought to myself, well, I don't think Americans are going to go for gun control. That's a huge debate. I know we need better mental health care. A lot of these people who are doing shootings have some sort of mental health issue, and the police themselves actually know about them, but they're able to get out and commit more crime. Or we just need to get the right people in office. Something has to happen. And maybe you're like me, you flip through the news, you see violence, you may see trafficking, you might see shootings, and you feel the same way. You think, we need to get people to think a certain way. We've got to get this person elected in office. It's this party's responsibility or that party's responsibility to fix it. But saints, we have a different way to war. But wait a minute. Didn't Martin Luther King Jr. say, that it may be true that the law can change the heart, but it can, but that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless? Yes, MLK did say that, but it's jarring, and there's still lots of evil that leaks through the barrier of the law. Laws are good to be sure, but every day you look on the news or you look in the community, you see bad things happen, and there are some people who use the law to do evil things as a justification. The law allows me to do harmful things, and they take advantage of it. So that's not quite enough. Or some of you here may not be thinking, oh, we need this change from people, but you might think, oh, we need to separate I need to grab my wife, grab my kids, and separate myself away from here and minimize the contact that I have with the world so that we're not harmed and so that we aren't also influenced by the evil in the world. But our engagement is to be different. God has called us to a different type of engagement that is more subversive, more powerful, more impactful than simply maybe relying on leaders or relying on different people within office. Because the problem isn't merely a physical problem. Because if we're just relying on people to fix it, do you know what that is? It's called, it's practical humanism. We're relying on ourselves to fix a problem that has an origin beyond the flesh or beyond, or beyond human origin. It's a spiritual problem. 
And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It's not of hu- they're not of human origin. It's not of human power. But they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And God has give us, given us weapons himself for us to combat these things. Fortresses of identity, fortresses of patterns of evil, fortresses of false belief. We have an amazing weapon that we're going to get into here that Paul talks about in his testimony. So on to Acts 26. And just a little bit of background. Paul, the apostle, and he's one who's been sent by Jesus to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jewish people. If you've read through the book of Acts, you see Paul going from synagogue to synagogue, preaching Jesus and upsetting a lot of people. <laughs> and it's reached a boiling point to the, to the point where he's now arrested. He's on trial and he's being accused of teaching Jewish people to forsake the law of Moses. And he's being accused of bringing Greeks or unclean people into the Jewish temple. So now he's before Festus, who is a Roman procurator. And a procurator is someone who is in charge of the financial affairs in a, in a Roman province, or they are a ruler of a Roman province. And Festus here, he is a, he, he is a governor of Caesarea, and Festus is presiding over the trial. And Festus is at a loss because he's not an expert in Jewish law. So he brings in a man named King Agrippa II. And he's a Jewish king. And he's an expert in all Jewish customs. And he was appointed by Rome to be a ruler in some specific provinces of Rome. But also, he is the one to overlook the Jewish temple. He overlooked the finances. He overlooked the appointing of the high priest. And he overlooked the priestly garments. And basically everything that was going on in the temple, he was in charge of. And Rome would have viewed him as a higher authority than the priests and the elders who put Paul on trial here. So Paul continues, and so Paul goes on to make his defense and the year is 60 AD. And one other interesting detail about Agrippa, it's rumored that he and his sister, who's also in the passage, not in the passage that I read, but he's in, she's in the chapter, it's rumored that he had an incestuous relationship with his sister. And, and Agrippa is also, also in the line of Herod's. He's related to Herod the Great. Uh, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is the Herod in Matthew who was ruler when Jesus was born, and he's the one who ordered the murder of those who were two years old or younger. So in Acts 26, Luke decides to focus in on the gospel message. And he doesn't focus on Paul's defense, or he doesn't even focus on the charges, but he focuses on the gospel, and so does Paul. So he says in verse 16, But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I, Jesus, have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles whom I am sending you. Paul's recounting his vision. If you, some of you may have read that he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him and he saw a bright light and he fell off of his horse and Paul became a Christian after that event and he's recounting that to Festus and Agrippa. And in verse 18 he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. 
Now, the issue is here in our text, both our problem and our solution. Paul says that he was sent by Jesus to open their eyes so that people would turn from darkness. Darkness is immorality. It's evil. It's violence. It's murder. It's an ignorance of divine and spiritual things. And Paul is called to turn people away from that. Some of you may know some people who may be into forms of darkness. It seems like they try this immorality and they, they're not satisfied there, so they go here and they try this immorality and they're not quite satisfied. Or they're just in this pattern of immorality that they just can't seem to get out of. Or they're just unsatisfied and they're just bouncing around from evil act to evil act, from sin to sin. Or there might be those who are going from philosophy to philosophy. They're trying this spirituality or that spirituality or that philosophy, but they're not coming to the knowledge of the truth of God. That's a symptom of darkness. And Paul says that they are under the dominion or authority of Satan. He's in control. He's influencing their actions. That murder that I saw up the road, that news story that I saw, that is Satan working in our society. There is an amazing, vast need for the church, which we're going to get into more. But they're under Satan's influence. He's called the adversary. He's called the ruler or God of this world. In 1 John, it says that that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, which is very unsettling if you think about it. The whole world, everyone outside of Christ is under the power of the evil one. That is scary. And these aren't just axe murderers or people who need exorcisms. This is just anyone who's resisting the influence of Christ or who says, I don't think I'll be a Christian. I don't think I'll go to church. They're being influenced with thoughts to not come, to not come into the light, not, to not come to church, to not read scripture, to not put their trust in Jesus. In John chapter 8, we get a little bit of a, of a view of how Satan works. In John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and there are some scribes and Pharisees who come to ask Jesus a question, and then they begin to argue with him as he's teaching. And Jesus says, you're trying to kill me. And then he says this, why do you understand what I am saying? Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Now Jesus is saying that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish people arguing with him who want to murder him are doing the desires of Satan. They are of him. He's influencing them. He has power over them. But you want to know something about this passage that that is unsettling that I thought of? These aren't irreligious people. In that group, you have scribes and Pharisees who would have ate, slept, and drank God's law, who, were, who would have been devoted. We have Bible scholars in this group. And being a Bible scholar does not exempt someone from being under the power of Satan. It doesn't exempt someone from being in darkness. 
I mean, who had Jesus delivered? It was scribes and Pharisees. It was elders rejecting him. And they're not exempt. And you notice there what Jesus says in verse 43. It is because you cannot hear my word, which is why they couldn't understand what they were saying. Satan blinds the minds so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he is blinding their minds because they are following his pattern. And it's happening right here in the text. And as we'll see further in verse 21, it's the Jewish people who became angry and seized Paul and tried to put him to death, which mirrors what is happening with Jesus in John chapter 8. So, Jesus, so Satan gives an inability to receive God's word in one of Jesus' parables. He says that when the word of God goes out, it's Satan who comes and plucks it up like a, word who's, like a bird who's plucking up seed on the road. He gives them a, a, a desire for murder, hostility, patterns of evil and sin, and he blinds them. But Paul's mandate from Jesus was to go and to open their eyes, to give them spiritual sight and discernment so they may say, oh, wow, I've got to turn. I've got to put my faith in Jesus. Which reminds me of a story. Most of you may have not have heard this person, but there was a 19th century slash 20th century lawyer. He was born in about 1859, and he died in 1952. His name was Philip Morrow. He lived a nice, long life. And he was a lawyer in the early 20th century, and he was a very intelligent man, educated, almost scholarly, and heavily logical in the way that he thought. And one day, he comes under these bouts of heavy depression. And he has a a successful life. He's making money. His career is successful. His relationships are going very well. And one day he says, I I can't get rid of this depression. Let me try to just gratify my desires. Let me go more after materialism. Let me go more after making myself feel good. So one day he goes with some friends to a theater and he's standing in line to buy some tickets. And he got got an urge to say, I don't. That I don't, want, I don't want to be here. So he walks away from his friends, and as he's walking down the street, he hears singing. Now, remember, this man's mind is, is a fog. He's depressed. He's walking in the pattern of the world. He's walking in a pattern of darkness to try and relieve himself. So he goes into a building, and he hears this singing, and what does he walk into? He walks into a prayer meeting. <laughs> So there are Christians praying, and they they greet him, and they start asking him questions, and they inquire about his spiritual state. And he comments that these were people of lower intelligence than me, lower social status, lower financial status, but I was drawn to the meetings. There was something there about these people, the way that they talked, and there was a presence there. So he was drawn out, and after several meetings, he said that he was influenced by the Spirit of God. And even though on the inside, he didn't want to become a Christian. He had lots of issues with Christianity. He had issues with the virgin birth. He had issues with the atonement. He had problems with the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. But God's spirit was drawing him and he couldn't resist. And having all these issues in mind, he goes up to the front altar and he kneels down and he puts his faith in Jesus. And his depression is lifted. But here's what he says about the event. He says, 
In the years that have elapsed, I have come to a better understanding of the tremendous change which took place that night. Though only in eternity will I fully comprehend it. Certainly, it was life from the dead. Spiritual things from that moment became realities and took a place in my thought and consciousness. The things that once had hold upon me began to lose their attraction. I soon learned by a happy experience that if a man be in Christ, there is a new creation, an entirely new environment. The old things have passed away and all things have become new and that all things are of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. This came from a skeptic. The Bible's not true. There is no afterlife. And he puts his trust in Jesus and this is what happens. And he goes on to say, Perhaps the most wonderful change which was manifest in my consciousness when my mind began to resume its normal activity and to inquire into what had happened was this, that all my doubts, questionings, skepticism, and criticism concerning God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, concerning the full inspiration, accuracy, and authority of the Holy Scriptures as the incorruptible Word of God, concerning the sufficiency of Christ's atonement to settle the question of sin and to provide a ground upon which God could in perfect righteousness forgive and justify a sinner and concerning an assured salvation and perfect acceptance of Christ were swept away completely. From that day to this, I have never been troubled by doubts, <clears throat> by doubts of God and his word. They were simply removed when I believed on the crucified one and accepted him as the, God, as the Christ of God and as my personal Savior. Amen. He became a new creature through faith. If we go back to our scripture, Paul says that there are those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. Those who are in darkness and those who are under the power of Satan are transferred to the kingdom of light and the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how a person's transferred. Amen. That's how it happens. And this man's mind was cleared. He'd become new. Faith itself brings about the transfer from darkness in Satan's kingdom to light in God's kingdom. You're brought to the knowledge of God. You're brought into salvation from your sins, forgiveness. You have a relationship with God. You have a justification. You are in a right standing with God through simple trust in Jesus. This is how you get out. But Satan doesn't want anyone to know that. People have objections. When you start talking about Christianity sometimes, people will say, well, what about slavery in the Bible? What about this? What about that? What about this contradiction in the Gospels? What about what Paul says about certain types of ethics? And I believe, personally, that there is a distraction from the enemy. Get them to focus on this little emotional issue so that they don't trust in Christ. He blinds the minds and tries to keep them in darkness. But how exactly did Paul bring about the sight because he's been commissioned here by Jesus to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light in the dominion of Satan of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. He has a calling, but how did he fulfill it? Verse 19 and 20. So, King Agrippa, 
I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. The key word here in verse 20 is declaring. Paul made a report. He told them the facts. Much like if you were to turn on the TV and you find a news story and the news anchor sits there and says, there is a man wearing a, wearing a hoodie. If you have any information on what crime he's committed, please call such and such number. Or this is happening in the community. The news people are publishing news openly or they're, or they're proclaiming facts about a situation. Or maybe you all watch YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube. And it's, it's a bit annoying when you watch a video and you get those little ads and you have to wait five seconds to go to your next video. I just want to click that off so quickly. But an ad pops in your face. Buy this. You only have a certain amount of time to get your 25% discount. You need this product. It's going to change your life. But this is much like the word here, declare. Paul was declaring and giving testimony, repent and trust in Jesus. Repent for God has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through this man. Paul was declaring repentance and through that declaration, God was drawing people over to himself. Repentance being a radical change of mind which results in a radical change of action. Missiologist and Christian leader Alan Hirsch, some of you may have heard of him, he says, repentance is literally thinking above or beyond what you're thinking now. Paradigm shift. It means having your mind blown. And elsewhere, he said, it's like having your mind ripped inside out. You're thinking along the patterns of this world. A lot of times when we talk about repentance, it's, just, it's almost like, well, I'm just stopping sin. Okay, well, yes, you're going to change your mind, and it's going to, be, it's going to show up as a change in your life. But it's much more than that. It is changing the way that you think about everything, thinking about the kingdom, thinking about your entire pattern, thinking about how you are to actually live, not just in a negative sense, I don't do this, I don't do this, but I positively do these things, and I am a kingdom citizen. For Paul says, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Think of Sermon on the Mount that Jerry talked about. That would be a life praying for your enemies, giving to the poor, not, not, accepting, not, not returning insult for insult. That would be a deed that's appropriate to repentance. So Paul fulfilled his mandate verbally. As he preaches, God is drawing people from darkness over to light. In Acts 16, 14, Paul, if some of you remember, Paul goes and he speaks to a group of women who are praying. And and it says, one of the women's name was Lydia. And it says, Lydia heard the things spoken by Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to respond. Upon hearing, her heart was opened. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus and he's there. He's preaching for two years. And it says that, the whole area of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And it says in Acts 19, verses 18 through 20, that many who believed were coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. There's an act of repentance going on. 
and they start laying down all of their magical books and they burn them, which is a picture of people adopting a king of ethic and laying the ethics of darkness in Satan's kingdom aside. So there's a, another man that perfectly illustrates this point, I believe. And his name is Oscar Navarro, and he's actually one of the, one of the vice presidents of one of the divisions of Living Waters. I don't know if you've ever heard of Living Waters Ministry by Ray Comfort. But he says that he, he was a, when he was a teenager, he was a militant atheist. And he was very familiar with the arguments of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, if you've ever heard of them, Christopher Hitchens. He was very well read on these atheistic arguments against Christianity. And he would like to debate Christians, and he was so knowledgeable that he could articulate the gospel better than some Christians could. And later he admits that atheism was a coping mechanism for him because he experienced evil done against him, and he also wanted to do evil, so he needed a way to justify that, and thus he, he was an atheist. But one day a Christian friend says to him, hey, you want to go to this Christian meeting? There's, there's a baptism going on. And he says, uh, uh, I guess, but as long as there's no preaching there. <laughs> and the Christian says, there's not going to be any preaching there. <laughs> so Oscar goes to the meeting and he sits down. And after the baptism, the, the pastor begins to preach. And Oscar's like, oh, what? He's preaching. And the Christian's confused, like, <laughs> and as Oscar And as Oscar's listening, he feels something inside that he hasn't felt before. Now, keep in mind, he's heard the gospel many times before, and he could articulate it. And he hears the gospel, and the pastor says, if you would like me to pray for you, raise your hand. Or, or, or actually not raise your hand, but he says, look at me. And Oscar looks at the pastor, and the pastor prays for him, and everyone who looks at him. And Oscar's like, that was weird what I felt inside when he spoke, but uh, just, I'll just forget about it and just continue to live my life. So Oscar still thinks he's an atheist, but there's some, God is dealing with him on the inside. So he continues to try and walk in that lifestyle, but now he becomes convicted. There's a heaviness on him, and he feels terrible. He doesn't know what's going on. He's like, something's wrong, but I think it has something to do with that preaching. God was dealing with Oscar. And Oscar picked up the phone and called the church, and he said, Hey, I'm Oscar. I'm, I'm the atheist guy. i got to start going to church. And he became a Christian through the hearing of the word of God. There wasn't an argument. No one sat him down and just refuted every single argument that he had read. It was simply a hearing. And he'd heard it all before. And they asked, Oscar, what happened? And Oscar said, well, it was just my time. God just worked in my heart. It was my time. And God worked through the hearing of the gospel. But particularly, what is the gospel? What did Paul actually speak about? In Acts 26, verses 22 and 23, Paul says he's continuing to testify before Agrippa and Festus. And if you notice here, Paul's not taking the opportunity to say, Festus, Agrippa, I'm innocent. I don't want to die. But what he's doing is he is taking this opportunity to call them to Christ. And to witness, Paul didn't hold his life dear to himself, but he considered the proclamation of the gospel more important than his own safety. But his words vindicate him here. What he says in verse 20, he says in verse 22. 
I'll start with 21. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating, there we go, we have that speaking again, nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And as I'm reading this, it reminds me of where Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And in this passage, the word of Christ is nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and rise from the dead. And you notice, you know, Paul wasn't necessarily lobbying and trying to change the Roman Empire, trying to change the, the plight of the Jewish people through political means. But I guess you could call it political means because he's preaching a king but not through an earthly political means, but he was doing it through the proclamation of the gospel. And what would have Paul been thinking when he was talking about the prophets and Moses and Jesus being prophesied in there? What would Paul have been thinking? But Paul would have been thinking of, Old Te- of the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus is the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18, the one to whom we must listen. And that he's the anointed king who's talked about in Psalms who had his hands and feet pierced and who resurrected out of the grave. And by anointed one, he means that he was anointed by the power and spirit of God to bring restoration, to do miracles, to have wisdom. And that specifically through the suffering of the Christ, it would, he would bring forgiveness of sins, that he would bring healing to those who trust in him. Those who are in darkness would have healing. Those who are in darkness would have their sins nullified, the, the bondage of sin nullified. And that Christ would, would proclaim light, which is the knowledge of God and salvation as is prophesied through Isaiah 49, verse 6. And again, stated in Luke chapter 2, verse 32. But it's through the suffering of Jesus the Messiah where sin is rendered powerless. This dark hold, the dark influence, our nature is disarmed because of the suffering of Christ. In Romans 6, it says that the power of sin is nullified through Christ's crucifixion. And we receive of his spirit And we're told in Colossians chapter 2 that our sin debt is canceled through Jesus Christ and that he triumphs over the rulers and the powers. And these aren't earthly rulers he's talking about, but Paul is talking about the spiritual rulers. Satan being the God of this world and he, he triumphs over him through his death and resurrection and those who trust in him are freed. They're freed from sin, and they're freed from the power of Satan. And he loses his influence. And when Christ is proclaimed, God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ into our hearts. Much like if you're plugging in an appliance into the wall, the electricity flows to that appliance, and the the appliance has life. The appliance is working. It's functional. And when we take the time to plug God's word into someone, 
God can make that person come alive. He can shine a light on that person so that they realize, I need to trust this Christ. I've been walking the wrong way. I need to repent. We may say, well, this is just Paul. This is just his commission. Paul was the one called to preach. I'm not a preacher. I'm not good with my words. But this is the church's collective commission. It's a prophetic call for you and for me, Gulf Coast. We're not all called to be preachers, but we're all called to use our gifts in this commission of opening people's eyes and turning them from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins. All of us do this with differing gifts. In Acts chapter 8, the church was scattered because of a persecution that happened. And it tells us in verse 8-4, or it tells us in the beginning of chapter 8 in Acts that the church was scattered except the apostles, the leaders of the church. But then therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. The church went about speaking Christ. But wait, there's more. Luke gives us a greater detail of what's going on in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. It says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and those who believed turned to the Lord. These are are normal people like you and me. Of course, there was an evangelist, Philip, among that group, but this was the scattered church. These weren't the senior leaders in Jerusalem. They stayed behind, and the gospel continued to spread through normal and everyday people like you. And God's hand, which is his power, his presence, his protection, was with them doing miracles, bringing conviction, and turning people to himself. And what I want to tell you is you have a treasure in an earthen vessel. You have the treasure of the gospel inside of you that God uses to bring people from darkness to transform. It can potentially transform an entire city, a workplace, a neighborhood. Even if you're not gifted with speaking. But the mandate was to be filled, fulfilled not just through Paul, but through the entire church. And if you notice from the stories that I told you, the influence of the influence that drew them to Jesus, a large influence from that was it wasn't preaching. It was an invitation. Someone invited Oscar to a meeting. If, you're, if you don't feel called to go and speak and to go and preach, you can simply invite someone to hear the word preached. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if people are in church, they're prophesying, they're speaking the words of God, and they come in and their life is exposed, they're going to conclude God is really among you people. So who knows, you can invite someone to a church or to a community group and they can hear something and be convicted and want to put their trust in Christ. Or even a collective gathering of believers praising God, singing, fellowshipping with one another can bring conviction to someone, which is what happened to Philip Morrow. 
He didn't record that someone took him through four spiritual laws or that someone shared a gospel presentation with him, but he was simply among a group of believers who were worshiping God and he came under the Spirit's influence. So even inviting non-Christians to come and see community can be used to draw someone from the darkness into the light. They may say, oh no, God is really among these people. I don't have him. That's what happened to me. But a few years ago, I was at the International Mall in Tampa, and there was a man sitting on a bench, and he was, he was wearing a hat. He looked, he was, he was in his 30s, and I was walking past him, and then I, I just got an urge to witness to him, so I walked up to him, and I said, excuse me, sir, my name is Samuel. I have a question. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? <laughs> and he looks up at me, and there's this fear in his eyes like, I don't know. Only God knows. And we had an amazing conversation. We just went back and forth. He was a Muslim, and he was asking questions about the atonement. He was asking questions about why Jesus had to die and the incarnation and repentance. And we were sitting there until the mall closed. We had, they had to tell us to leave. <laughs> but the funny thing is, after that conversation, he says to me, you know what? I was about to do something bad tonight. But after this conversation, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And he gave me his phone number, and we continued to talk over text. But a simple witness of our words is a challenge and engagement to the darkness around us. Our gospel conversations, our sharing of our testimonies about Jesus, invitations to come and hear the preached word, even giving or leaving a gospel tract somewhere or inviting someone to just see Christian community is an active resistance against evil that God's able to use. And we can be used of God to prevent an evil act, to prevent a poor decision, or to cause someone to leave a destructive pattern in their lives, or to just answer an inquiring soul. Not to mention that God can use that witness to bring someone from darkness over to light. Gospel proclamation brings kingdom transformation. Uh, let's pray. Um, uh, Father, we do thank you that you have given us a powerful gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a confidence in your gospel, Lord, that we wouldn't rely on human methods or human logic or political leaders, though we have the privilege from you to influence those things, and we should take advantage. But Lord, help us to not let that be what we're ultimately trusting in, Lord. But help us to trust in you and use us here collectively as a church and individually to be witnesses and lights. And Lord, we pray that people would turn from darkness to light, those who are in patterns of darkness and stuck and cannot get out, would turn and be used of us in this neighborhood, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.